0: Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Hi, so welcome to another episode of the Open World Podcast. My name is Danny Flood, and in this episode, I'm joined by Matt Inglot. He's the founder of Tilted Pixel, a web design and development agency, and he's also the host of the podcast Freelance Transformation, which interviews top freelancers to learn how they price their services, how they get leads and clients, and how they run their freelance businesses. So if you're a freelancer looking to improve your business practices or interested in learning about freelancing to earn revenue and do so remotely, then I know you'll love this interview. We have a ton of good topics we're going to talk about on this call, so I'm excited. And Matt, just want to welcome you to the show.
1: Danny, uh, thanks for the welcome. Thanks for the awesome intro, and yeah, let's do this.
0: So you're from Calgary, right? Perhaps you can tell me a little bit about uh, what your background is like. You know, when you are, starting from college and then, you know,
1: starting your own business? Sure. So I got into business uh, from a young age. Actually, it happened in high school where I had this dawning realization that there was more to the world than just getting a nine to five job. So up until then, I was going to be a programmer for Microsoft. And then I met a friend who uh, he was selling uh, as seen on TV products on eBay and, and this was all in high school, so it like blew my mind. He was making a fair bit of money every week doing this. And so that kind of got me thinking, well, I should, start, I should sell stuff too. I should have a business. And so I, I ventured in a few entrepreneurial things. But what really kind of stuck was my web agency, which I started in my second year at university. And it's been uh, just over 10 years now that I've been running it. So I went into it basically building websites in a moldy student basement apartment and kind of grew it over time. At one point, had an office and employees realized that wasn't the path that I wanted to take because that created all sorts of lifestyle restrictions. And now 10 years later, I see my web agency as a huge lifestyle enabler. It's allowed me to travel around the uh, to different places in the world. Um, it allows me to have a very flexible schedule. And yeah, I do genuinely actually really like my work.
0: Yeah, I think usually with most businesses, when you're 10 years in, things are going great and you've learned a lot along the way, but um, usually like the first year or two are kind of just like you're, you're whacking moles and, you know, making all kinds of mistakes. And I want to ask you what, what the first like couple of years were like, I mean, did you have any business experience going in or are you just kind of like learning everything as you go?
1: Yeah, so my business experience was extremely minimal at that point. And if I could go back, I wish I would have like worked for some other agencies or experienced some of a working world first. Because in in my like ten years of I guess professional life, you could call it uh, I've only spent eight months of my life in a cubicle and that's it. And, and I think a little more cubicle time would have actually been good. So at first I had no idea what I was doing. And that was actually okay at first because I was basically just freelancing. And as a student, basically getting paid anything above minimum wage was just like mind-blowing. But as soon as I got serious about things and I got an office and I got em- I got employees that's when i really realized how far i had gotten uh uh out of you know anything i actually knew how to do and so i made some mistakes probably the biggest ones being not selecting the right clients and dramatically undercharging for our services which is a problem when you have to meet payroll and pay rent and all of that exciting stuff you get to do as sort of a you know quote real business owner
0: yeah, it's tough. I mean, when you're starting out, you just want to get any business that you can. And you end up working with people who are just like, you know, want to put you through the fire and just always grilling you. And they want to get as much value out of you as they can. You know, they don't want to pay very much. But I know that you have like some very specific struggles. Like you were, uh, like you spent Christmas Day and you were you were glued to your computer all day just fixing spreadsheets and stuff just to, because of your, because of a client demand uh, or you would go somewhere with your girlfriend on Easter weekend, and then you were completely stressed out because your clients were giving you a hard time. Uh, what, what was that like for you? I mean, what was, what was, what what were you feeling when you were in that place?
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> misery and despair. Uh, <laughs> there were definitely a few years of my life, sort of during, uh, mostly during the time I had office and employees where I was just in over my head. And I think like a lot of freelancers, whether you have other people working for you or whether you're solo, you kind of get into, you you get stuck because you've made some of these wrong choices that I mentioned. So uh, they they kind of go hand in hand, choosing the wrong clients. So choosing clients that uh, are willing to write you a check and basically uh, are alive, versus putting in more effort to find the kind of clients where what you do is super, super valuable to them. So the wrong clients might not necessarily be clients that... you know They're not necessarily bad people. I mean, there, there's a few people that are genuinely out to make your life miserable. But I think people are generally good. But just because someone's good doesn't mean that they're the right fit for you. It's got to be someone who you can deliver tremendous value to. So now I choose my clients extremely carefully... And my best clients are the ones where we started off with some sort of reasonable-sized project. But several years later, the size of that engagement has grown from anywhere to 5 to 10 times as big as the original engagement. And that's because we're able to continue delivering value to them. Whereas if you have another client that's, say, because we're a web agency, they simply need a website built but they don't have a lot to benefit from our other expertise like how to get found online, how to actually make their products sell online. We'll build a website and then we'll basically never hear from them again. And that's disappointing because then you have to go and you have to keep selling over and over again. Whereas if you get a client that you can work with for the long term, then you have to spend far less of your time making sales. And in the beginning, I had a lot of the wrong types of clients where... My criteria was, they want a website, we know how to build websites, I better find a way to sign them on.
0: Yeah, I think our experience was kind of uh, similar. I read this book called uh, Flip Your Funnel by Joseph Jaffe. And um, when I really started to do well in my business, freelancing, was when I um, had back-end services to offer to my existing client base or even previous clients just to be able to get them to work with me on an ongoing basis. And then I found like some services like a WordPress site would be like the front end and then, you know, maybe local search engine optimization, um, maybe content marketing, video marketing. Uh, these would be things they would hire me for on an ongoing basis. Cause obviously they have to market their business. Um, I found that was really kind of the key to, to building a 10 hour work week is just because uh, trying to get new clients all the time is just so time consuming. And, There's so many people that when you're starting out, they'll they'll ask for a free consultation or something like that, and you're so excited. It's like you're going to work together, and then they just suddenly disappear afterwards. Why do you think that is?
1: Well... It's all—it's all about finding clients that are really serious and vetting your clients carefully. So, yeah, that definitely happens when you'll talk to someone and they'll seem like they're fired up, and then they disappear on you. So, to me, that's usually a symptom these days that you didn't ask the right question. So, when if for, so, how our process works is first we'll get a lead coming in somehow, usually through our request a quote form on our website. And I'll look at that lead and I'll look at the information they provided us and that can... Usually at least get my gut in the right direction. Could this be a potential lead? Or is this someone that's really not going to be a fit for us? So the projects we do tend to start at $20,000. If someone gets in touch and they want a website for their new dog sitting business, let's say, uh, that's awesome. I'm happy to refer you to Squarespace or Weebly or some uh, lower price designers that I know. But I kind of already know that this isn't really going to be what we're looking for. And I'll probably just email them back and tell them that. And, you know, it's very important to be able to recognize those situations so that you can just be honest and tell people no rather than engaging and, you know, using a lot of both of your time. But if I get them on the phone call, then my job with the phone call is I've got, say, maybe 30 minutes to an hour to really evaluate this prospect and see if, This is a project that's a potential fit. And when I go into that phone call, I go in with the mindset of no. So I don't think to myself, well, how can I get this person to like us and work with us? I'm looking for reasons to not work with them, which, you know, it's not because I'm a jerk or anything. It's again, it's looking for that right fit. So if there's anything about it that seems like it's not the right fit, Uh, then I kind of push on that a little and see if, okay, well, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. Um, And what will happen a lot of times in these calls is I'll just refer them elsewhere. If it does seem like a good fit... um, and it sounds like I've got buy-in from them, then I'll probably schedule a, a deeper exploratory call. And that might mean talking to more of their team and whoever else is involved in that website that really needs to be part of that conversation. And I'll these days I use a software called Calendly to book that. So it's very easy for me to end that call, send them a follow-up email to, to uh, get the longer exploratory call, and I'll usually get it. But if I don't, that's okay because that's just a qualification thing. If someone doesn't go to the effort to book that call with me, that's okay because I know they're not, you know, either they're not really interested, something went wrong with the call, or they're just, you know, not that serious. Um, So I I almost like I, I add in a few hoops to jump through and... I give myself a lot of outs so that I'm not spending five to 10 hours in the sales process on somebody that maybe has a 5% chance of closing and probably a 0% chance of being the type of client that I actually want.
0: Yeah. I think that's great when you're uh, kind of overwhelmed with opportunities and you already have a stable client base, but when you're starting out, I mean, it's, it's tougher. You have to, you need to, to make business to pay bills, Right. Yeah. But,
1: and I mean, <laughs> so, so, I mean, if, if I was starting over, it mm-hmm. would be awesome if I had like a full time job and could kind of gradually transition to freelancing. Okay. That would have been awesome. But what happened for yeah. me is I lost, I lost the part time job I had scored. And meanwhile, I was paying my own tuition, rent, and everything. So I definitely did the whole hustle thing where I told everybody, that I built websites, and I got my first few, first few clients just by being really chatty with everybody I met, and making sure that everybody that interacted with me knew that I built websites. So pretty much the opposite of the approach I just described. Mm-hmm. But again, I also didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> um, but I, if I had to, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, if, go ahead. if I had to start again, ideally I would like to have some sort of income stream and some runway if I were to like be restarting things completely versus to just quit my job one day and just go to my boss and be like, I'm a freelancer now and I don't need you. Cause I think that's a terrible, uh, terrible approach.
0: <laughs> well, you don't even need to have a job too. I mean, there's lots of sharing economy platforms that you can leverage. Like um, maybe you can Airbnb a room in your condo or um, do like some Uber driving on the side or something like that, you know, so you don't have to be locked into a job and you can work on your side hustle in the meantime.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and that's a great point, especially, I mean, technology has been excellent for that. Um, you can do so many cool things and you can do them part time.
0: It, it really is a freelancing economy. I mean, you know, you, and I, I find that the more platforms you're on, you know, the more engaged you are in this sharing economy and just getting yourself out there, I, I feel like the more opportunities there are. Uh, but I wanted to add something though you know even if i 'm doing prospecting like if i'm if i 'm consulting with someone and they 're just starting out as a freelancer, I kind of give them the advice which you just kind of gave there where you 're vetting your clients so i 'll often tell them you know even though you 're prospecting for clients you 're putting advertisements out there once once someone once you generate a lead and they express interest in your services, then I think it 's really important to kind of give sort of like a false time constraint where you say. I say, hey, Matt, you know, I would love the opportunity to work together. Uh, The thing is, I'm I'm really busy with with work right now. So um, could you wait like a week or so and then I'll I'll follow up with it, follow up on this? Um, And I think just just when you can say like, I'm really busy with work right now, you know, I'm not like desperate. I'm not going to like contact you and show you how eager I am to work with you. I I think that's really, really important, you know, because you have to kind of, it's like Oren Klopp says, you have to do prizing. You have to be the prize, you know, if you're going in to pitch something to investors, you know, you can't go in like you need their money. You have to be the superstar. They have to want to work with you. And I think a lot of freelancers, uh, they come in like, like they're applying for a job and the the client is the boss, you know, and then the boss,
1: Oh my God, (laughs) that's so true.
0: And then the client kind of controls the chessboard, you know, they control the center of the board and you just have to take whatever terms they dictate to you.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And I think you hit the nail on the head there because uh, I think a lot of people getting into freelancing come into it with a job hunting mindset because that's all they've ever known. They don't know what it means to sell or how any of that works. And the ironic thing is it should be the other way around. People looking for jobs should be taking cues from how people successfully sell their services versus most job hunting advice which frankly is terrible
0: okay so matt so let me ask you how do you come in as like how do you demonstrate that you are the superstar like you're going to bring a bunch of value how do you how do you justify a twenty thousand dollar price tag you know what 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 do you have in place to to prop up that price and to prop up the perceived value of your service
1: sure uh so what i do ultimately, I think, demonstrates the value through action. So most of what I do in the sales process is actually asking the client the questions. So when most web developers will come in for a sales meeting, they'll do all sorts of weird things that's not going to get them the sale. They'll start showing off their work. They'll start talking about how great they are. Or they'll ask questions, but they'll ask the wrong kinds of questions. So they'll ask things like, what do you want on your website? Or what kind of fonts do you like? What's your company's color scheme? None of that matters. Who cares, right? You as the professional should be telling the client all of that. So the types of questions I ask all center around what it is that they're actually trying to accomplish by building their website. And that's where all the value is made. So something prompted them to get in touch with you and say, hey, I want to get this website built. We have some sort of budget now. So something in the business actually happened to trigger that. And that's almost always, uh, especially if you're working with businesses, something related to sales. So the company wants to get more sales. The company is doing some big rebranding. The company now has a product that they're selling online. But somehow they're looking to move the needle higher using the website. And once you realize what that goal is, what they're trying to move the needle on, then you can start exploring that further with the client. So let's say, uh, so for example, we did a website for a home builder. So their goal is to get people into their model home. Okay, great. Now that we understand that, we can dive deeper. Well, what may how do people find uh home builders online? What do people buying homes look for in a custom built home? Um, what is the shopping experience like, and we start really digging, digging, digging. Into the whole like customer psychology, into how, how those products are sold. And then we start talking, and then I start talking about, well, here is how a potential website could help you capture these home buyers online. So, for example, I noticed a lot of home builders make the same mistakes with their website. So I pitched something different and I can see how that would connect to getting more home builders to actually get appointments. So now instead of talking about color schemes and pop-ups and whatever gibberish people talk about in web meetings. Now we're not talking about the website at all. We're talking about how to get people into a model home. Now, if you're going to talk about color schemes and fancy websites and mobile compatibility, how is the web how is the client supposed to value that? Well, they're going to look at what other web developers charge and they're going to say, "Well, this website's probably worth let's say maybe 5k." Because again, you're, you're selling color schemes and mobile compatibility and content management systems. Um, now, you get a company like us, we're not talking about any of that stuff because we've repositioned this project as how do you get people into model homes? Well, what is a visitor to a model home worth? And it turns out that number is actually pretty high because even one... Sale of a home means a ton of money for the home builder. One sale equals the website project's been paid for, possibly several times over. So once you have that dawning realization and you've built your project around that, suddenly the client wants to give you that 20K. Um, it's not even a negotiation at that point because suddenly there's a huge potential return for them
0: yeah that's such a fantastic point I think so many freelancers are just focusing on the wrong things like you said um, you know focusing on colors fonts that that doesn't really speak to the client the client has a business they want to be able to take that business to the next level they they see these opportunities out there and you need to show them that you're the right guy to help them realize these opportunities that they already have in their head I think and I think you're so what you're doing is you're you're describing a consultative sales model i I know when I do this um, I have a simple model it's just Problem statement and then proposed solution, is that kind of similar to the model that that you do, like if, in a contract, for example?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a good way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, our materials look slightly different, but it's it's the exact same concept. So if you look at our proposal, that is going to follow exactly what you describe. We we do a little description of a problem um, and then we you know, paint a picture of what a solution looks like. And then we provide all of the supporting details for how to make it happen.
0: Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, I'm 100% with you on that. I always, I always advise that you find out the client's pain points, uh, the opportunities they want to seize for their business and then perhaps also their business strengths. And then when you, when you identify this information, you can present your service in a way that solves all the problems they have and captures all of the opportunities as well as leverages their strengths as a business. And once, yeah, once you absolutely. do that, you're not, just, you're not just another commodity. You become like a trusted partner who can help get them to where they want to go.
1: Yeah, 100%. And actually where I learned that model was business school. Uh, because we did a lot of these uh, things called cases. And all the cases is they give you a business problem. You spend some inordinate amount of time trying to figure out a solution and you generate like 40 pages of supporting data. But then when you're presenting it, they limit you to five pages or something like that. So you've gone through all of this analysis and now you're, you're supposedly presenting to senior management or CEOs or something. And you've got to write this concise five-page report that explains the problem and that explains the solution and why this is the best alternative compared to the others. And they really, really drilled that to us um, and got us to the point where we could state this stuff pretty concisely and convincingly. And then later when I realized what a proposal really was, I started to realize how much of that knowledge was directly transferable to writing a convincing proposal.
0: So um let's let's shift gears here a little bit. Uh I know your clients now are e-commerce, nonprofit, and B2B businesses. How did you arrive at those particular niches and um what have you been doing to attract those leads?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So in terms of arriving at those uh three different and fairly broad markets, it was just a function of looking back at previous customers and seeing what worked. Uh, And that's kind of what we arrived at. But there's a very big difference between what we say on our website and versus what we do. So the website is targeted currently at these three broad groups, but over time I've actually narrowed down my targeting quite a bit. So, my website might speak towards, for example, e-commerce and talk about how great our e-commerce solutions are. And that's fine. But it doesn't mean that I go out there and try to close any sort of e-commerce site that's out there. I actually have very specific criteria for the types of e-commerce projects that we would consider working with. So for example, uh, something that we're really strong at is e-commerce that requires... A great deal of customization, so not something that you could necessarily do uh, with a system like Shopify, uh, but something that's a lot more in depth. So, I even though the website doesn't specifically talk about this, um, that's kind of the types of clients that we look for in the e-commerce space, and we have different criteria, for example, and lead generation. And nonprofits are actually something that we don't do much of anymore. It's still on the website. uh, But, you know, after kind of weighing the pros and cons of app market, it's something that I'm actually shifting us away from.
0: What are some ways that you help your clients to, uh, I guess, get more traffic or generate more conversions? Because I know that a lot of businesses think that they have to have simply like a, a brochure website. But a lot of the things they they put on their site, you know, they don't actually generate revenue. Um, about pages, contact pages, you know, f- fancy sliders don't actually deliver anything to the bottom line. So, if you're going to optimize for a client, you know, to to help them get more conversions, more sales, uh, what are some things you focus on? What are some things you can offer?
1: Sure. So that's integrated very deeply into everything we do. It starts with the end goal in mind. So going back to the home builder example. If you want the end result to be that someone schedules a model home appointment, then that's the entire purpose of a website. And then everything else is reverse engineered. So if a prospective home buyer comes to your website, first of all, what is it that we want to tell them right away? So a lot of websites badly mess this up. But... We want to tell them what we do in such a way that connects with how they think about their problem. So if they want like a gorgeous custom high-end model home, then we make sure the first copy they see is something geared towards making them picture being in this gorgeous custom model home. It's not welcome to our website. It's not, you know, five paragraphs about You know, how your home has the best air conditioning, or all sorts of weird things that people do. It should just be a very concise headline of what you offer. And then the rest of the website should basically be engineered around the prospective buyer's journey. So a lot of it comes down to really understanding and taking the time to research how people buy that particular service. So what is it that they are most concerned about? What are their criteria for picking a company? What do they need to be educated about? And quickly you start painting out a picture of uh, what website sections are going to answer those questions, so in the model home example they 're going to want to see homes that you 've built they 're going to want to see communities that you 've built in they 're probably going to be deeply deeply, deeply concerned about the type of quality work that you do because they 're buying this this literally their biggest investment. And they're basically trusting you to put the nails in the right place and use quality materials and not cut corners, then the website better be reinforcing that. And then finally, there's the call to action. So every part of that website should be getting them one step closer to whatever that end goal, that end call to action is, which in this case would be schedule... Uh, schedule a visit to a model home. So that's the approach we take and as soon as we start talking to prospective clients about that nine times out of ten, that is completely different than anything else they've heard. But if you take that approach, then you can start delivering real results to people. And if version one doesn't work, then you've got a framework for figuring out what could possibly be wrong. Because again, we've done all this research. We understand the buying process. So we just figure out, well, okay, what, you know, what didn't click? What are we missing? Where are people falling off the site? And we adjust and adjust until we get it right.
0: Very cool. And I know you have a really awesome infographic on your website um, that kind of dia- – it's called a lead diagram where uh, you, mm-hmm. you just really broke it down. I really like how you did that. Can I put that on the, the show notes for this episode? Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but basically it breaks down, you know, like, here are your lead sources. You know, here's what the consumer is going to do. They come to your website. They get information. Does it look like a solution to their needs? Um, are they ready to purchase? Um, yes, yeah. then we move them to we move them to the sales funnel. If not, we we find another way to nurture that lead. I, I really like how you broke it down there.
1: Thank you. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, I had put together that graphic a while ago. That's why I was kind of like, oh yeah, we did make that. Yeah, that is an awesome graphic. So yeah, you're you're very welcome to put that on there.
0: <laughs> well, it works. You know, you, you mapped it out, and I think that's awesome when you can when you can kind of map out that that customer relationship timeline. Um, but I know that it doesn't just stop with lead generation. You know, sometimes they, uh, so for example, like if they sign up for a free white paper, they they join your mailing list. Um, you know, how many emails do you have to send before they buy something? Um, you know, if they buy a product, you know, when are you able to to sell them another product? So could you talk about like um, the timeline after the lead generation? And then like uh, as far as like closing the deal and then and then after that, you know, how do you uh, get full monetization from each uh, from each customized post.
1: Yeah, uh, so that's definitely a great question. One that, frankly, uh, you could read tons and tons of books on. But it comes, <laughs> you know, if, if I'm going to summarize it, it, it first of all comes down to understanding how your product is bought. So there's some products that you can sell directly online. If you're selling like a twenty dollar widget. Uh, just sell the thing. Just just have your shopping cart. Let people click buy now, and just get them through the door. Um, that's kind of going to be an impulse buy. Whereas there's some buying that requires some significant thinking before you actually decide to pull the trigger on the purchase. So, for example, if you're selling an info product like an online course, that might be several hundred or even several thousand dollars. That dramatically changes the buying process. If you try to sell that the same way you'd sell a $20 widget, you will fail. So... In those kind of cases, we might not have any sort of shopping cart on the website at all. But what we might have is an email sign up. So people can sign up for some sort of free offering that you're giving them. So some sort of uh, free email course or some sort of checklist or something like that. And the point of that is to just get them into your email list. And once you have have them on your email list, you might use a series of emails that you send out to basically warm up the prospect, um, really talk about their problem that they're having, deliver value in terms of how to solve it, and really get them to trust you. And at that point, when you've built that initial relationship, at that point, they might be willing to buy. Or say you have an e-commerce store. You know, someone might buy that $20 widget from you, but that might be just the beginning. There might be this whole other email marketing sequence that focuses around uh, basically sharing other products with them that they might be interested in buying. And you can do that in very simple ways, such as, hey, check out this new thing we have in store, or you can get really creative with it, like flash sales or um, sort of a Groupon style deals, although. You know, I don't know how popular Groupon is anymore. Um, but basically, you do have to understand that buying process. So that You can understand what that website needs to be doing for you. Uh, if we go to the extreme with the home builder again, you can't sell a home on a website. No one's going to put a house in a shopping cart and click checkout. Um, that's, uh, you know, several hundred thousand dollar investment. So you need to understand every single step of a buying process. So we know the website needs to schedule an appointment, but then there's actually other parts of a sales process where the website's incredibly useful, such as if we capture their email, we can send them tons and tons of other stuff that's going to reinforce them wanting to buy from us rather than someone else. So that's, that's some examples. Um, you'd really, uh, This is kind of such a deep topic that you'd really (laughs) want to get reading on the top books that speak to the type of thing you want to sell, or you hire a company like us. Because, you know, for example, I've been involved in marketing for 15 years. um, So I have some ideas on how people actually buy products.
0: If you have a kind of autoresponder set up and they join your mailing list and you make an offer to them, but it's not working very well or if you think it's not working very well uh, what are some things you can do to improve it because you know I have a mailing list um, and whenever I offer anything for free you know I'll, I'll get like 200 emails people writing me back but I need to like if, if I want to sell something for $700 or even just like $20 um, conversions are much lower so so how can you optimize those those offers that you offer in your follow up to kind of push, I guess, I guess to get them off the fence, you know, to, to get them to sign up. What do you mm-hmm. suggest?
1: And, and actually, you know, go, go from being someone on your list to becoming a customer. Yeah. yeah, no problem. So I have to be very vague about this example, but I just recently mailed a 400 person email list that had never been sold to before and managed to get some sales for a four figure product. So there's people on that list that went from never having bought anything uh, from that uh, from that list to pulling out their credit cards and dropping several thousand dollars and that was kind of an extreme example, but uh, it, it can definitely be done. The best thing that I can suggest is first of all, look at how you nurture. Uh, those email sign up. So the absolute worst thing that you can do is you, you offer some great freebie for somebody. They sign up for your email list and then they don't hear anything from you. Well, that's not great because I mean, they're going to forget who you are and you're not going to be building any sort of relationship with them. And building that relationship is key. Um, Second worst thing you can do is instead of sending them nothing, you just send them random things. So whatever's on your mind, but nothing's really cohesive. Nothing's really getting them closer towards solving the problem that they signed up for your mailing list to solve. They're just kind of getting your newsletter um, that's a very passive relationship. And so this is where something like an email course is great because what email courses are designed to do is to drip out free content, uh, to an email subscriber, but they're designed to do it over time and they're, they're literally positioned as kind of a mini course. So if I sign up, uh, to your newsletter, because I really want to learn how to make pizza really well and impress my wife. I don't know. Um, Then if I get seven emails on how to make the perfect pizza, then I'm getting tons of value. I'm starting to really trust you. I'm actually implementing some of your advice. I'm going to be a thousand times more susceptible to actually buying from you. Uh, That's for example, I, you know, you're a podcaster, so uh, I'm a podcaster as well. Uh, there's a course called uh, The Podcaster's Paradise, and it's by John Lee Dumas. And I think the course when I bought it was about $1,200. So not a cheap investment. And the reason I ended up buying it is because John Lee Dumas used that exact email sequence on me. I got on his email list for his free podcast course. He delivered tons of value over like two weeks, helped me getting my podcast started. And then... You know, once I trusted him, once I've gotten to know him, then he sprung the pitch for the paid course, which is cool. And there were several emails about that. Uh, Because it was such a high ticket item, he even had like webinars running about it that you could join. So I joined one of his webinars. I listened to what the course had to offer. And next thing you know, I was filling out my credit card info. Um, So these types of sequences really work. So if you're not getting people buying, uh, first thing to do is look at how you're nurturing the list. Uh, Second thing might be the product itself. Uh, There is a very big difference between uh, developing a product based on what your list has told you versus developing your product because that's the product you want to create. Um, So the best thing to do is ask, continuously ask your list what problems they have. Like if you sign up for freelance transformation, at some point, you're going to get an email from me asking you what your biggest struggle is. And I promise to respond to that email. But what I do is I put that email in a spreadsheet. And now I have a spreadsheet of all of these different problems that my customers have. Or if you want to even a, a better example, there's a book called Ask by Ryan Levesque and Ryan's Brian's a great guy. Um, I had a chance to meet him recently and he's just you know, really smart um, about the way he manages his email lists. And his book Ask is entirely built around how do you figure out what your customers actually want. So basically, your customers got to trust you. They got to want to buy from you. That relationship has to be there. But you've also got to be offering them the thing that they actually want to buy.
0: Excellent. Great tips. And while I was listening to you, I was actually just looking at uh, podcastersparadise.com. You uh, mentioned John Lee Dumas and how he sets up his funnel. And mm-hmm. is that is that the website that you signed up for when you joined his mailing list?
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> all right. So now we're getting into deconstructing uh, John's email
0: funnel. Well, well yeah. I just, I, I'm just <laughs> curious. This is what I really want to know about. Because when, when you when you go to his website, for example, right – he does a tactic that we discussed earlier in this interview, where even though he's prospecting for clients or mm-hmm. for customers for his Paradise podcasting, um, he's also reversing it so that you know he's the person of value. Because if you if you try to sign up for Podcasters Paradise, it takes you another page where it says you know sorry we're currently closed, and then you know but join the mailing list to be notified when it reopens. So basically, mm-hmm. he's saying that you know we're too busy, you know we're too full. You know, but you can like, apply to, to join us. Um, so he's yeah. kind of reversing the script here. And then um, you join his mailing list, obviously. And then I imagine that's where that funnel you talked about or that, that follow-up begins. And then you get convinced that you need to invest $1,500 in, in his program.
1: That's exactly it. I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. You can't just go on his website and buy his course. You have to get on his email list somehow, whether that's entrepreneuronfire.com. He's got a domain name called freepodcastcourse.com. Uh, He appears on people's podcasts and he promotes that free course on there. Um, I believe he runs Facebook ads. There's just a ton of stuff that he does to drive people to that email list. So he's not spending all those marketing dollars to bring you to a sales page for a $1,500 course because John knows that's not going to create customers. What he does is he wants you to participate in that email sequence so that you can get to the point where you are... willing to spend that money and make that investment into his course.
0: Fantastic. I feel like we just stumbled upon something awesome here. So that's really kind of like how to engineer that sales psychology into your lead generation and into your sales funnel. They come to the landing page. He promotes on the podcasters, on other podcasts, and then they come there, they try to sign up and it says, sorry, we're full, but you can join the email list. And the next step is they join the email list. They get that email course that you mentioned, which really is is really honed in on what their problems are and how they can can do better obviously john has a lot of social proof and then at some point he he opens it up to new spots and he has this exclusivity aspect and you feel like you really need to jump on this because he's identified all of your pain points and you you trust him now you know that he he can speak your language and help you get where you want to go
1: A hundred percent. And honestly, I would strongly recommend joining some of these email lists. Like I have an email address where it's it's just an inbox full of some of the best uh, online marketers uh, out there and everything that they're doing. Um, Because, I mean, that's the best way to learn is to see what the top guys uh, do with their launches and their sequences. So if you're not on any lists, um, fix that right now.
0: Awesome, yeah. So go go to Podcasters Paradise, and I think John is is doing well. He's doing better than anyone, as well as anyone, with his podcast and, and online marketing wise right now. Uh, his his revenue numbers are ridiculous. So if you're going to follow, if you're going to mimic someone, mimic the best.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Excellent. So you've done really well with your podcast, and I'm a little bit jealous because you have a lot of reviews uh, on yours, and I'm trying to get more reviews on mine. You have 78 reviews so far. Uh, what's what 's been key in the success of your podcast
1: um, honestly uh, it 's been a few things uh, for things like reviews you you really kind of got to go the extra mile and ask people at every opportunity um, it 's really important, especially during launch. I made my podcast launch a a real event. Uh, I made sure everybody that I knew. Knew that I was coming out with this podcast. And on launch day, I mean, over two days, I sent something like 50 handwritten emails to contacts of mine asking them to check out the website, to check out the podcast, to subscribe. If they like it, consider leaving a review. You know, I never do stuff like, you know, you have to give me a five star review because I think that's bordering on dishonest but I definitely encourage people to leave reviews and I think that's really important and then going forward I mean I do get communication with my email list so if someone emails me I mean they, they might not even be on my list but if someone emails me and says hey I liked your podcast and you know such and such I always go back well I mean awesome dude really happy that it helped you uh, by the way could you leave a review and sometimes that gets you reviews as well But the big thing for me for actually getting traffic to the podcast has definitely been uh, the people that I bring on my show. Uh, I always strongly encourage guests. Again, they're not required to, but I strongly encourage guests to share out the episode. And I make sure they know when the episode is coming out. So a week before their episode is released, they're getting an email from me and they're being told, hey, it's coming out this Monday. I'm going to be promoting the heck out of it all week. And it would be amazing if you shared it with your audience. And at that point, they're almost certainly going to reply and says, yes, I'll share. And getting that yes ahead of the episode launch turns out to be very important because at that point, they've made that commitment to you. So when you release it on Monday, they're not blindsided. They know the episode is coming out. They know they want to share it because, hey, we, we all want to help each other. Um, so they're actually going to go and they're going to follow through instead of just ignoring it and telling themselves that they'll share it later or whatever. Um, And part of that too is, I guess, establishing a really good relationship with your guest. Uh, So the more you can do some great pre-show chat or post-show chat, build a bit of a relationship there, the more likely they are to really want to help you. Like I've had a number of guests that have actually emailed out their podcast interview uh, with freelance transformation. And that's always a huge compliment because some of these people, they appear on a ton of podcasts, so they're not necessarily going to mail their list, but if you can do a rockin' interview and if you've got a bit of relationship, sometimes, you know, you can be the one that they're happy to tell their list about.
0: Awesome. That's a great tip. And I need to do that too, is, um, I don't do that. I need to notify them beforehand that you're going to publish their episode, uh, next week. I know John John Lee Dumas does that very successfully, uh, where he he gets them really excited about their, their episode coming out, and he says like, uh, "Your episode is going to rock Fire Nation on you know April fifteenth or something like that," and then um, and it just like it just feels like a really like good opportunity for you, like a privilege for you to be on his show, um, and I like how he 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 uses, he uses that like Fire Nation. Uh, just, you know, just the way he, he like creates this community, does that really well.
1: (laughs) He (laughs) does do the fire nation thing is really clever. Yes.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, this was an awesome interview. Okay. I need to stop saying awesome so much. This was a really, (laughs) this was a really great interview. And, um, thank you for sharing so many useful insights about sales psychology, about marketing, conversions, um, freelancing, everything we talked about on this, this podcast.
1: Not a problem. That It's my huge pleasure. And thanks so much, Danny, for having me on your show.
0: So if you want to learn more about Matt and what he's up to, go over to freelancetransformation.com and um, you can click on start here. He's got a lot of really great articles and resources on there, uh, books to read about consulting and freelancing, and um, just a treasure trove of resources that you put together here.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you again, Matt. And uh, take care. Have a good one. How? Um, oh, yeah. How can someone get in contact with you if they want to get in touch?
1: Sure. Uh, so a couple ways to do that. I'm pretty active on Twitter. So just uh, my Twitter handles, Matt Inglot, M-A-T-T-I-N-G-L-O-T. So feel free to tweet me there. Or if you have something you want to get in touch with via email, uh, Matt M-A-T-T at Freelancetransformation.com will get to me.
0: Great. Thanks again, Matt.
1: My pleasure, Danny.